Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to have you this week because I have literally a true, true friend, like the My Little Pony (laughs) song. Thanks for having me, Mary. So my name's Ashlyn Friend. Mary and I know each other because we both worked at the same college and university at some point, at the same time, rather. And then we no longer work there, but we've remained friends since. When Mary asked me to come on, I was really excited to do that. I'm a huge podcast junkie. And so it's just a real honor to be able to be here and uh, hear about some murder. Do you want to explain your role in higher ed or what's the work that you're doing with students? Yeah, for sure. So I actually work in conflict resolution. So peacemaker by trade, that means that I'm a trained mediator. I do conflict coaching slash life coaching with some of my clients. And I also do a ton of work with our restorative justice program. Briefly, the idea of restorative justice is that, you know, when a crime is committed or when there's a harm done to the community, rather than punitive action, like things that you see in a court case, putting people in prison, that sort of thing. It's this idea of can we connect people who did harm with people who were harmed and as a community figure out what does the response look like to repair that harm? And that brings me having an interesting orientation to a murder podcast because we're looking at a subset of the population that we really don't always know the right way to handle when they do really heinous things. So I'm interested to hear about today's case and how that relates to my content area expertise. Something that I really appreciate about Mary's style already is Mary reached out to me ahead of time and was like, what are things that are no-goes for you? Because the whole idea is I don't know what Mary's about to share about. And so I just, having listened to other true crime podcasts, I think that you really have lovely care and selecting your guests really thoughtfully, helping us feel comfortable walking in and that you're not bringing in content that could be like triggering or really upsetting. And I think that you bring something a little different to the conversation with that kind of care. Thank you. It's the trauma-informed support that some of my favorite podcasts do not practice. Mm. Yeah, no, they're just like, hey, here's this heinous thing and I'll make a vague warning at the top. But otherwise, you know, you're you're in for it. <laughs> right. And then halfway through, it's something super disturbing that you had no idea was going to take this left turn. Yeah. Today we're talking about murder. There's going to be some graphic discussion of injury and also mishandling of human remains. This is an international case from Ireland. So I really cannot embarrass myself as a first generation American and pronounce things wrong. The sources I used for this week's episode were two YouTube channels around this case. One was the channel Ireland Crime Wars, and the other was the channel Awkward Rabbit. I also used Wikipedia. Sophie Tuscan Duplantier was born on July 28, 1957 in France. Sophie is a 39-year-old film producer, and her husband is also a film producer. They met through the industry. She has two sons, Pierre-Louis and Daniel. Sophie used to vacation in Ireland as a teenager, and that's actually where she learned to speak English. She absolutely loves Ireland, and as an adult, she has a vacation home there. She loved life, and she really believed in living life to the fullest. That's something that came through in her work and in her home life. She is blonde, she's thin, and she's very pretty. Sophie is very, very close with Pierre Louis. Mm -hmm. He describes her as his whole world. And Sophie really loves film. There's a lot of footage of her making appearances, not only in their home movies, but also short films that she had worked on. Her son was 15 when she was murdered. He currently lives in Paris with his wife, Aurelia, and his children, Louis and Sophie. 
he doesn't talk much about the murder, but when he does, he's always put right back into those moments of learning about his mother's death. His wife is very supportive and she's aware that having this case unsolved is taking a huge toll on her husband. She describes West Cork, where Sophie's vacation home was, as feeling like it's the end of the world. It's just very peaceful. There's nothing really around besides like this beautiful landscape. And so it's just a really gorgeous, wonderful place to be. Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis, and his wife actually still go to this vacation home in Ireland. So many goosebumps. Well, and did I hear correctly that he named his daughter after his mother then? Yes. Oh my gosh. So they actually go and stay in the house every year. And kind of make this pilgrimage there and they bring their children. I always wonder about like going back to physical locations that have that kind of memory or that trauma associated with it and how folks can still interact with that. Like I I know you've mentioned it in previous episodes, but there's just like bad vibes in those places now and yet people still live in the house or they like maintain that property. And I just that sounds like it would be so painful, but I'm glad that that house for them wasn't ruined. They actually say that part of the reason that they do this and go back at least once a year, they want to honor her memory and have his kids know her and grow up with her. And they really feel that her essence is in the home and they keep her alive by talking about the memories and appreciating the countryside because she really had this deep love for Ireland. I would assume that for them wanting to honor her memory is more important. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's really lovely to be able to have some agency over the memories you share with your children about their grandmother and not having it have to be framed around this terrible thing that happened to her. That lens of like, I'm going to honor her memory in this way, instead of remaining deep in my grief and closing myself off to this part of our relationship and Mm. something that was really influential in both their lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His wife is in the fight for justice. And she talks a lot about how they want answers because when their kids get old enough to ask, they want to be able to be honest with them and tell them exactly what happened. Sophie arrives at her vacation home in Skull on December 20th, 1996. Skull is in County Cork. It's about 70 miles outside of Cork City, west of Cork. December 23rd, 1996, a neighbor woman passes by and she thinks that she sees a large doll all the way down the driveway at the gate to the property. A doll? She thinks she sees like a doll or a mannequin. Oh, I would assume the denial. Yeah, like my brain can't compute that this is anything else than a mannequin randomly here. So the house is up this big winding driveway and there's essentially a farm gate, which I know you know what it looks like Mm -hmm. down at the end of the driveway. She actually doesn't think twice about seeing what she thinks is this mannequin. (laughs) Maybe that's the resident's life in me that I'm like, no, I'm going to go take a look at that. Yeah, to live a life where I'm not concerned about a large bloody mannequin. What a what a dream. <laughs> I don't know that I want that extreme. <laughs> I'll land probably closer to the other end of that spectrum, ultimately, right, right. I guess. <laughs> she comes home from her errands and she gets a better look and she realizes it's actually Sophie's remains. And this is December 23rd. So it's like two days before Christmas. Yes. 
There was no signs of a struggle or any real sign of a disturbance in the home. There's actually some cash out in the open. This wasn't some failed robbery. There are two chairs and two wine glasses sitting out. And Mm -hmm. there's a book of poetry open on the table. The two chairs are sat like right across from each other. And that's Mm -hmm. described as the way Sophie liked to sit when she read. It's known that Sophie is not one to just sit idly by if she thinks something is wrong. So if she heard noises or if she felt creeped out, most likely she would have gone outside to investigate. It's also discovered that a small hatchet that hangs near the door is missing. Oh, no. (laughs) Everyone that knows Sophie says she absolutely would have opened the door if someone knocked. They continue to investigate the home. There is blood evidence found on the back door and the back gate on the property. Okay. Sophie has around 50 severe wounds on her body. 50? Five zero. Oh my gosh. It's complete overkill. I mean, literally. With that many injuries, could they tell? Because sometimes they can autopsy and figure out like what was the fatal injury. But with 50, I mean, how could you even discern that? I'll just go ahead and disabuse you of the notion that they did anything meaningful. No, (laughs) they were just like, well, that's a bummer. Sophie has lacerations to her head and face. Her right ear actually was almost torn off. Uh. On her forearm, neck, and face, there are shoe imprints from Doc Martin boots. Sorry, I'm making a large aghast expression that is not picking up over the media. So she was kicked multiple yeah. times. Oh my God. Stomped, maybe? Stomped is probably more accurate. Hard enough to leave impressions. Jeez. There is a concrete block and a paving stone on the ground close to Sophie's head. And it's clear that there's a lot of severe blood force trauma. Both the concrete block and the paver had blood on them. So bludgeon potentially with that. Right. Like, The paving stone is said to have been from a nearby hut that was being constructed about 30 feet away. From the crime scene. I think about all of the various murder media I've taken in over the years. And this type of killing just feels so personal. And so just thinking about the person, like what is going on in that person that they continue to like hit with a rock and then kick with a boot. And then there's a hatchet maybe out there. I mean, there's something going on that is not accidental in any way. It's purposeful and very frightening to think about doing that to another person. It's vicious and the rage and the physicality of Mm -hmm. being in that rage mode as someone who has traditionally dealt with a lot of anger issues in my adolescence Mm -hmm. to the point where I would like break things or I would kick holes in walls or punch holes in walls. Hey, undiagnosed bipolar (laughs) too. Nice to meet (laughs) you. Looking back, things are so clear now, but I got diagnosed at 32. You live and you learn, apparently. (laughs) You go in this like blackout zone where you're just kind of raging until you tire yourself out. To do that to another person for that extended amount of time, however long it took to inflict these 50 injuries. Right. 
That's scary. I think about like, you know, in my work doing anger management work with folks, part of helping people deescalate themselves is being self-aware of like, oh, I feel some rising anger. I can feel my anger trigger starting to go off or, you know, I can be aware that my amygdala is being activated. And so my fear center is being flooded and I'm not thinking logically or rationally. And so part of the game is just helping people be self-aware of that rise of anger. And I think about people who act on that anger in a way where you're, you're causing 50 serious injuries on a body like this like the the there's no self-awareness right like it's just I'm just raging and I'm I'm not going to be content until like this is flooded out of my body that's it's scary there's no emotional regulation which yeah. even unmedicated I learned to do because mm-hmm. you can't break shit and yeah. freak out and have these massive explosive outbursts nobody will want to be around you yeah just horrific yeah I just like, that's a lot to do to a body and I think you're right that there's a blackout or a detachment that like must happen for someone to be capable of that because like the implications of doing that to any living thing is just staggering to me. Correct. To any living thing, but especially like a grown adult person, Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. that, you know, animals or anything else like that is less extreme. It's all horrible. But to think about seeing that is so Mm -hmm. traumatic Mm -hmm. to imagine inflicting it is unthinkable for most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's about to get bad. Okay. Oh, now it's about to get bad. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) The medical examiner isn't able to come to the scene when Sophie's body is discovered, but when he does get there the next day, he determines that the block was used as the murder weapon. Collective no shit, Sherlock? Yeah, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, and? (laughs) In all of my years of podcasting, I could have deduced that myself, I think. Well, then I'm also thinking if it's taking a full day for the medical examiner to get there, what happens to a body 24 hours post-mortem? Sophie has self-defense wounds on her arms, so there was very clearly a struggle. They also speculate that some other scratches on her body, on her legs, could have come from brambles outside. There are no signs of sexual assault. There are no indications of any drag marks. So no attempt to cover up the crime or to hide Sophie's body. Wow. While you would expect there to be significant forensic evidence, like DNA from Sophie's murderer, Mm -hmm. because there was... Hair and blood from her attacker found. There was skin cells under her fingernails. And there were these boot prints. Mm -hmm. The police are actually unable to collect any DNA evidence from both Sophie's body and the crime scene. Unable? Like, what does that even mean? Actually, this is a good clarifying question because I'm not as familiar with the country of Ireland. But what would you say are the resources of this area to be able to have, ability to have high quality investigations? Like, is this kind of a small town? Is this a moderately sized town where they ostensibly could could have done a better job and they just didn't. What's your take? This is a very small village. They're getting help from like a larger police department, but mm-hmm. it's very much a small town investigation. Yeah. It's the only murder in that area in that year. Sure. They really are not equipped to do a full scale murder investigation. Which again, like, I don't know that that absolves them of a poor investigation. It provides context around the type of crimes these folks are used to investigating. And then all of a sudden this like grisly murder occurs and they're, they're kind of caught unawares of how to maybe properly investigate, especially in those early stages when it's so important. Right. The Irish police are known as the Guardi and it's the Bantry Police Department that's investigating this. The guardies say that some of the blood evidence were amounts that were too small to collect, to which Mm -hmm. I say, sure, Jan, 
Yeah. All right. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> you have all this evidence and there wasn't anything that you could collect forensically. It sounds like you have a rock with blood on it. That seems like a good place to start. <laughs> Thank you. Like we could investigate this. From the start, the guardie mishandled the case and muck around with the evidence. The crime scene is not preserved whatsoever. The only thing that they did was cover Sophie's body at the crime scene with a plastic sheet. Uh... Until the following day when the medical examiner comes 23 hours later. Unbelievable. And then she's been under like a plastic sheet, which like holds in moisture. I'm thinking like the dew from the grass and like, you know, this just, it's so disrespectful to her remains also. Yeah. yeah. Which that doesn't even scratch what I'm about to say. Jesus Christ. Uh There aren't many crime scene photos, maybe five. And what does exist is not at all helpful. By the time the medical examiner does come, Sophie's hair has become matted and they decide to cut her hair short. Are you kidding me? Just for like ease of whatever, like let's just cut her hair. Oh my God. You don't have a bar of soap or like a dollop of shampoo? And you don't know anything about like the wishes of the family in terms of how they would want to like, are we going to be doing a burial of some kind? Would we want her to be able to like look like herself or like, I'm assuming these are men here too. And so, which was like, maybe not a correct assumption, but I'm just, I have this image of like all these men being like, well, let's just get their hair, this hair out of the way, snip, you know, like I just. I would say that's a very safe assumption. (laughs) I have not been to Ireland since 2004, but I did spend Mm -hmm. significant amounts of time there growing up. When I was in elementary school, we went there a lot in the summer and it is still a very patriarchal society. In my opinion, people may disagree. Irish listeners, shoot me an email. Let me know. Am I wrong? Incorrect assumptions. How's the patriarchy doing? (laughs) I think that you are right. There was no regard for her as a person Mm -hmm. beyond whatever their goal was in trying to investigate her injuries would be my hope. But it's a bad, bad, bad call. Just get the detachable shower head and just give a good rinse. If that's indeed what you have to do, because I'm also like, all right, her hair is matted. What's the benefit of having her hair clean at this juncture versus when the body is handed over to a funeral professional and they're getting her prepped for you know burial or something? You know, I, I don't know. I guess I'm curious, like, what about her matted hair was a problem for the investigation that they needed to cut her hair off in the first place? And know? this is 1996. We're not in like yeah. the 1800s like it's it's ridiculous even more bizarrely they bandage her wounds to cover her injuries what they bandage her wounds which at this point would not be bleeding because she's dead i don't understand i can't think of a reason why you would do this it was it too gruesome for you cops to look at but that's not giving her body any dignity that's just for the living onlookers who are investigating the dead you know like you cover bodies when they die to give like some dignity to the body but when you're bandaging up wounds that doesn't seem like any benefit to the dignity of the dead person that is only for investigators say goodbye to any vestiges of that because they also put a lot of makeup on her corpse shut up no yeah before sophie's brother can come identify the remains 
So when he gets there, he is absolutely horrified. I just have this image, and I know that's not what you said, but of like blue eyeshadow and like messy lipstick, you know, because I'm thinking like, who is the person doing this makeup? (laughs) Probably not someone with any sort of (laughs) background in... Or training in this. I am right with you that I imagined like a very drunk Mimi from Drew Carey moment. Exactly. But then dead and yeah. 50 wounds to the body. Jesus Christ. And that's the other thing here that like I think a lot about is as much as I want to preserve the dignity of the body, I'm also thinking about your like her brother is coming, already received the news that they're coming to identify a body that is possibly if not highly likely to be someone they love very much and then you find out information like this about how her remains were treated post-mortem and it just adds to the trauma I, I can't I don't want to keep using the word trauma it's it's there's it's like even worse than that or just the the memories of that day of right. not only did I have to come and confront the fact that she died but now I'm, I'm having to kind of live with the reality of how poorly her body was treated and that there's no justice for that you're just recompounding trauma upon trauma at this point. Exactly. Her brother actually said it looked nothing like his sister, and they had to call in her parents to ID her remains. Jeez. So let's create more victims and more yeah. trauma and just spread right. that all out. And it's possible that she already didn't look like herself because of the injuries to her body and, and also your body bloats and stiffens and you just don't look like yourself when you die, right? Like you're, And to then think about things like your hair being cut really terribly and then makeup really sloppily put on your face. Again, like I'm charitably trying to think like, what is the motivation of the person doing this? Are you trying to soften the blow somehow by making this dead person look prettier? And that's got some yucky patriarchal assumptions there as well that like somehow even in death, she didn't have makeup on her face it's just pretty wild i have two trains first train is that it was so awful they couldn't bear to look at it and selfishly had to try to remedy it right which come on Mm. and then my second train is it was so gruesome that they were like we have to make her look better before the family comes and Mm -hmm. instead made it eight thousand times worse Right. And as they were trying to save them from the horror that they witnessed of finding the body, they've made this like garish, clownish version of her that is somehow even worse. In some of my peacekeeping training, like sometimes there's this tendency to like soften the blow if something really brutal happens. But then the assumption of that is kind of gross that, you know, me as the mediator or the peacekeeper wants to try to like rephrase something really hard to hear or like protect someone from hearing something that's really painful. But then what is the assumption that I'm making about that other person that they can't handle it? Like I'm thinking about specifically training I've done around conflict that are layered with like racism or different like isms that can cause that emotional pain for people to like express to someone, hey, this is what the other person said. And maybe it's horribly racist. As a white mediator, I might have a temptation to want to soften that blow or be like, well, I think they said this. And what I think they meant was that, but that isn't my job to do that. And I could be making things worse by trying to soften the blow. And then I'm also maybe underestimating or in a paternalistic way, trying to say like, well, they can't handle it and therefore making it worse for the other person. So maybe the sentiment of like, well, let me try to make this family not see this bloody, horrible version of their loved one. But in doing that, they've created something even worse for them. The three theories around Sophie being killed are all crimes of passion. 
Someone flew into a rage and killed her. Possibly Sophie reminded the killer of someone who had hurt them. Or Sophie was actually the intended target. Someone knew her and where she lived. Yeah. And I can understand those theories. Because again, I like the crime of passion explanation of the someone who just continues to hurt someone like that is enraged by that person. So I, I could see that explanation being a popular theory. Because at some point you were just brutalizing a dead body. Exactly. The stranger in the bushes that just jumps out and kills people at random, like Golden State Killer, all that stuff is just such a small subset of what is actually the relationship with people who get murdered, that they know the person. There's there's something intensely personal and, and intimate about murder that is not just the random person stalking them. But maybe Sophie is part of that statistic. I don't know. The Guardi and Skull, the Bantry Police Department, are stunned because there's very little crime in the area. Like I said, this is the only murder that's happened all year. Yeah. As the news is first breaking, the media don't know much about the crime. They're reporting the suspicious death of a woman who was partially clothed. She was in PJs. Yeah. Sophie's family actually learns of her murder through reports in French media. What? Where's the next of kin notification going out about that? Ay, ay, ay. Can you imagine? It's so awful and disrespectful. I mean, at a previous university I used to work at, we had a student pass on campus through natural causes. The morgue's office puts out death records and things. And so the media in the town uh, had some kind of beat on, let's just keep an eye on the morgue's, you know, reports just to see if there's any students. And sure enough, a student's name popped up and they published about the student's death before they could notify next of kin. And like, they were actively trying to reach out. It was like within 24 hours. So it wasn't even that the university wasn't doing their job. It's just that the dead student beat was so juicy that they... My um, God, how ghoulish. Yeah, ghoulish is the right word. God, how terrible for her family. Her brother, Bertrand, talks about hearing that a French lady in the Skull area had been murdered and how they were all hoping so hard that it was someone else. How many people fit that descriptor, you know? Like they had to know on some level. Which is also why I'm like, I don't understand why it was such a struggle to ID her when it's her home and it's a small village and everybody knows, everybody sort of knows everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. Which it is a remote area. There's a lot of land. There's a lot of just big stretches of like beautiful, beautiful green rolling hills. Mm-hmm. It is described as like the end of the world. Yeah. And like you said, there was cash left out. You got to believe her wallet is somewhere in that house that has her driver's license in it. You know, I just like a modicum of investigation probably could have revealed who she was. Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis, says that his memories of his mom are too personal to talk about. It was just extremely traumatizing for the whole family. He also says that the day he learned that she died was the last day of of his childhood oh my god and he was 15 yeah jeez i mean i believe it right like that's one of those things that you're you're forever changed after something like that happens to you sophie's parents talk about seeing young women who remind them of sophie and how they try to remember and honor her as much as they can but they also have to balance the sadness that comes along with the grief sure yeah that makes sense to me Sophie's mom says that she believes Pierre-Louis may see justice, but she doesn't know if she and Sophie's father will be alive to see it. Because at the point of this interview, they had been waiting 20 years. 
And that's the thing about like my work in restorative justice. Like this happens all the time in the sense that there's so much pain and so much harm that these victim survivors carry with them. And there's all these unanswered questions. And, you know, there's so little faith in the criminal justice system giving them those answers and that they just have to live with it. It's the unsolved period or unsolved for decades cases, living with that open-ended, never knowing, Mm -hmm. I think is ultimately maybe more difficult than knowing immediately that you've lost someone Mm -hmm. because there's still that unrequited hope and you'll never have an answer for certain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the village is saying that there has never been any history of crime, especially not any recent break-ins. They're all shocked and probably very scared because this is not a place that they could imagine someone would be murdered. Sure. Yeah. They're wondering, is this person going to come for me now? The Guardi launch a full investigation into the murder. Heavy quotes around that. (laughs) And they work through Christmas to try to find out who could be responsible. They asked the public for help in reporting any locals that they'd seen that had ripped or stained clothing around the time of the murder. They strongly believe that the perpetrator would be bruised and scratched because there was a scuffle. It's also possible that Sophie had actually tried to escape outside and the sleepwear that she was wearing had been torn. Around 11 p.m. that night, Sophie's husband Daniel had called from their home in France and they spoke by phone. So they know that the murder occurred after they got off the phone, Uh but they cannot establish an exact time of death because so much time passed between finding Sophie's remains and the medical examiner showing up. And the husband has an alibi in that like there was this phone call and he's not in the country. They quickly investigate him and clear him because he is obviously in France and around his alibi, it wouldn't have even been possible for him to travel back and forth. They investigate for a full year without any charges being brought forward. And mm-hmm. Sophie's family begins being extremely critical of the Guardi. Their lawyer accuses the Department of Justice of obstructing the French justice system from investigating because the Irish justice system is refusing to share the files. I'm sure there's some territorial impulse in that of we got it. We don't need your help. You know, the suggestion that I need help makes me not want to work with you. And also, what is the harm? and asking for help or accepting that help, especially when your resources are limited. We Irish are a proud people. (laughs) The Guardi do clear 50 suspects fairly quickly, but there have been a lot of red flags around one suspect, Ian Bailey. Okay. Ian Bailey had moved from England to Ireland in 1991. He had been a journalist in England and was down on his luck when he decided to move to Ireland and moved into Skull. He started working odd jobs to make ends meet, and it sounds like he didn't have much of a plan. His life was pretty directionless, and he's just kind of bebopping around trying to figure out what's next. He meets Jules, a local artist, and shortly after they meet, they start dating. Jules is also his landlady, but after they start dating, he moves into her home. Oh, dear. (laughs) Jules' home is known in town as the Prairie. It's outside Skull Proper on the outskirts of the village. The Prairie is about four miles from Sophie's home, so about a half-hour walk. Ian Bailey says that on December 23rd, he got a phone call from a local journalist who had asked him to take the lead on pursuing a story. 
the story of an unnatural death of a French foreign national since Ian was closer to the crime scene. This journalist later testifies that they never spoke about the nationality of the victim when they were coming up with the coverage plan. Jewel says that they were watching the news when they found out that a French woman had been murdered and they realized that Ian had done some work for someone who lived next door or on that property in the past. So they decide to hop in the car and drive right up there. Uh Ian is a journalist, so this somewhat makes sense. But he asked Jules to come along and act as his photographer. When interviewed later, Jules is asked how Ian knew how to get to Sophie's house. And Jules says, oh, well, he had a hunch. Okay. Ian says that he once saw someone inside the house while Sophie was living there, but he wouldn't have been able to recognize who it was because he's never met Sophie. Okay. Jules and Ian are first on the scene besides the guardie. Just, you know, found their way there. Ian asked two of the officers for information on behalf of the cork examiner. One cop rebukes him and says any information will be coming from the guardie press office. Thank you. Goodbye. Jules is walking around and taking pictures. Ian decides to go to the post office and asks for the names of any French nationals. And the postmistress actually does give him Sophie's maiden name. Oh, <laughs> like, so you're being like, ah, like that should not be illegal to send that stuff out. <laughs> it's a FERPA violation. Like FERPA is not a thing, but you know. <laughs> Oh, no. Can I tell you one time in grad school, I sat through a presentation called FERPA Schmerpa about how we just don't do that at this institution. And like, we'll call parents and do whatever we want. Private schools are wild. Oh, my God. You can do whatever you want there. Private Catholic school (laughs) run by nuns. Yeah. The Dominican Sisters, OP, Order of Preachers. That's when I was like, oh, I'm in for a bad time here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Ian begins reporting on the case for the Cork Examiner, and his article right after the murder seems to imply that he had intimate knowledge of the case and the investigation. Mm. Ian claims that he was working with photographers and other journalists who were getting this information and allowing him to use it, which as someone who did journalism for a bit, that's not really my experience. You're not like, oh, you know what? My goodwill is going to make me share this widely with every other journalist who's on this beat. No. One example of this is Ian writing about her head injuries, which he claims were common knowledge at this time. Guardi take fingerprint and hair samples from people in the village, including Ian and Jules. They also ask everyone in the village to fill out some questionnaires. As a result of this investigating, Ian is found to have been observed in the days after the murder with scratches on his neck and face. Mm, Where'd those come from? (laughs) Oh, you're going to love it. Ian meets with the police who ask him about the scratches and bruises on his arms. And he says that the day before the murder, he was killing turkeys for Christmas. Okay. He says that his face got scratched up because he put all the turkeys in a bag upside down with their feet out. What? Okay, picture a Tootsie Pop turned upside down. And little turkey feet out. And the turkey feet are the stick and the pop is a bag of turkeys tied together. And that's a perfectly logical explanation of how you got all scratched up. It's always how you do that. I mean, the more elaborate the lie, you know, the more plausible it becomes, right? He says when he was hanging this bag up, one of the turkey feet glanced off of his head and scratched it. 
So his claim is that the scratch was actually on his head, not even on his face. And he says, well, the cops should have taken pictures and that would prove that these were all just light scratches. I also have to say in all the interview footage from 2020, he is so fucking shady and defensive. He keeps saying in response to all of the probing questions. Well, first of all. Yeah. Just communicates a lot, a lot of openness and honesty and innocence. Yeah. It's not a good look. Ian also says that he and Jules weren't really a fan of of how expensive the Christmas trees in Skull were. (laughs) Okay. They decide not to spend any money. And Ian was climbing trees to cut down just the top of a tree to use for their Christmas tree. Which that's totally how that works. You put the chainsaw on your teeth and you shimmy on up there and you and then you got your Christmas tree. Who needs a belt or like bungees or carabiners or a spotter? You just do that all yourself. Yeah. He says that in the process of cutting off the top of this tree, he cut himself up and scratched himself up. Jules is interviewed describing this in 2020, and she's like, oh, the scratches were so tiny. It's like those little pine needle scratches. Bullshit. I call it bullshit <laughs> on both your houses because yes. how, how does that work that other people are going to notice these tiny pine needle scratches days later? That's not how right. this works. Mm-hmm. You, like me, have outdoors experience. Yeah. You grew up in a pretty rural area is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you also understand the difference between like tree scratches and yeah, fingernail it's scratches. Bullshit. Yeah. A tree scratch and a fingernail scratch are two very different things. And pine needles don't scratch you like that. That's just, it's just not a thing. Like the bark of the tree, an errant stick in the tree. Sure. But like, I've never gotten scratches on my body as a kid from climbing trees that look anything like fingernail scratches. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Soon enough, the media catches wind that Ian is a suspect and they approach him about it directly. Ian responds, oh yeah, of course it was me in a very sarcastic manner. Sure. Play it cool, Ian. No one will suspect you. That's the best thing you could do is just be really sarcastic and flip about it. Ian says in 2020 that this was very misinterpreted and the media ran with it, even though it was him just trying to make light of the situation. Of the murder. Yeah. You know, making light of the murder, (laughs) you know, ever since you guys accused me of murder, the energy in here has been really heavy and I just wanted to lift the mood. Okay. With, with some jokes. (laughs) The fuck. Oh man. Yeah. It's being reported that the prime suspect is about to be arrested. And sure enough, Ian and Jules are arrested the following day. Ian says that the cops are very hostile to him right from the start. And he was just so surprised to be getting arrested and being interrogated. Ian's story is that he and Jules had gone to a local pub to go watch some live traditional Irish music. He actually says that he played along with the band and great times were had by all. Jules says that they left around 1230 a.m. And in 2020, Jules says that night, Ian suddenly had a horrible feeling that something bad was happening somewhere. Okay. I'm glad he's just so in touch with the universe to know when there are bad things happening. (laughs) He's like, ooh, my spider sense is tingling. Like what? 
Then Ian's story to the guardy changes. First, he said that he had slept through the night, but then he said that he got up in the middle of the night and finished working on a story. Jules can't confirm this one way or the other. And when she's interviewed in 2020, she just kind of waffles back and forth. Jules is also confused about the timeline of when she first saw the scratches on Ian. And an interesting point about this is that nobody at the pub remembers seeing any scratches on Ian. Weird. Weird. Ian claims to have been wearing a long sleeve shirt that night. <laughs> no wonder they couldn't see. I had on a snazzy turtleneck. No one could see any of my body. <laughs> Ian learns that a witness had made a statement to have seen him near Sophie's property around 3 a.m. on December 23rd. And he starts learning more and more, allegedly, from his network of journalists that are so helpful. Right. He finds out that the woman is named Maria Farrell, and she has gone on the record to make these accusations against him. The police leak Ian as a suspect, and the media blitz is on. His home immediately is surrounded by journalists and paparazzi, and Ian is quite happy to talk with them and give a few interviews to almost anyone that will ask. Great. Wow. Ian is released and is not charged, but the public now is set that Ian is the murderer. Ian says that once, when he left a bar in this time frame, he found out that afterwards someone said, that's the guy who killed that French woman. And then everyone <laughs> clapped. <laughs> I mean, I'm not usually down for like public shaming, but for someone who murders someone, like, yeah, let's ostracize that person, you know? <laughs> I'm so down for everyone to make Ian feel just terrible. <laughs> He's like, oh, feeling bad for me. Yeah, no one wants to be my friend after I killed that person. <laughs> my feeling got hurt when everyone clapped and was happy that I loved. Ian and Jules' home is also vandalized repeatedly, but Ian mm. digs in and says that he's determined to fight. Ian also says that his neighbors were told by members of the media that Ian was absolutely guilty, no doubt about it. Newsflash, asshole. Journalists will say literally anything to anyone right. to get a quote. Whether or not they tell you it's on the record, you right. got to keep those lips zipped. And your neighbors don't care about that because you're a fucking asshole. Right. Even with all of this going on, the Guardi just don't have the evidence. Yeah. So Ian is eventually arrested again and then released again. No evidence is formally presented to a judge until 2003. And this is because Ian sues several Irish and British newspapers for libel. Oh, wow. Newspapers deny saying outright that Ian is a murderer and insist that they've only identified Ian as a suspect. To help defend themselves, the newspapers receive copies of the Guardi file on Ian. Oh, jeez. So he just opened Pandora's box. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. It turns out that many witnesses had given statements for the criminal case. Marie testifies for the newspapers against Ian and says that she did see him on a road near Sophie's property around 3 a.m. She also says that Ian had tried to harass and intimidate her to change her story. Ooh, that's a normal thing that innocent people do. <laughs> One man testifies that in early January, Ian had admitted that he killed Sophie when he was giving him a ride home. And this man was 14 at the time. So I'm sure this stuck with him vividly. Uh -huh. Allegedly, in conversation, very cash, Ian just kind of dropped a little bomb that 
everything was going great until he went to Sophie's house and bashed her head in. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure your life was on a great trajectory before you did that. But it was a joke, I'm sure. I have a pretty dark sense of humor. Right. Some gallows humor, you know, that's a thing, but... Especially when I was doing crisis response and trauma work, Mm -hmm. you get a little dark and twisty there. This Mm -hmm. is not that. No, and like when people say what they mean, you believe them. And and that's an example, like I know it was meant in jest in his mind, but that's like that kind of leaking that happens where you're like, "Mm, I don't know if you were joking. Right. It's definitely not one of those jokes that you're like, that was weird, but okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Or like mm. sometimes when people are under a lot of pressure, you're maybe willing to give a little bit more leeway if they snap right. or if they say something that comes off a bit mm-hmm. funny. That's not that. No. Many people actually testify that Ian had made explicit statements about killing Sophie or being guilty of her murder. Of course, Ian claims that he was just using humor and irony. In 1998, two of Ian and Jewel's neighbors, Richard and Rose Shelley, host them for dinner. At this dinner, Ian allegedly broke down in tears, crying out, I did it, I did it, I went too far. What? God. Ian's defense for this is to say that this was a mantra that had been drilled into him by the police during hours of questioning. False confessions are a thing. They happen all the time. People absolutely get badgered and all twisted around. We know that police love to do that. This is like some Robert Durst stuff, though, you know, where on a hot mic, he's like, I killed her, of course. You know, like, that's what this feels like. He's stress burping and sweating. Yes! (laughs) Absolutely. It's too much. Any Mm. one of these things would be like, ooh, all of them together are very damning. It's hard to excuse it away. Ian and Jules' current story is that they went home after the pub went to bed. Jules Mm -hmm. conked out. Ian can't sleep, gets up around 2 or 3 a.m., works on this article. He handwrites it at the kitchen table and then goes downstairs to type it up in the computer. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning, he brought Jules a coffee in bed Mm -hmm. because he's so great. Also in 1998, a friend of Sophie's comes forward and says that they had actually had a conversation with Sophie about Ian Bailey. Mm -hmm. She had called him a friend and said that he was a poet exploring violent things in his writing. Mm -hmm. It's never been confirmed that they actually met, but Ian had definitely worked on the garden there a few years before Sophie bought the property. In 2002, Ian wins his lawsuit with the papers. And he is awarded 8,000 euro in damages, but he has to pay 200,000 euro in legal costs. Yeah, but it's the moral victory here that counts. (laughs) Absolutely. And this proves what an absolute dick he is. Yeah. Eventually, this legal finding is overturned and the papers actually agree to cover the costs of the trial and they pay Ian 70,000 euro. Oh my God. What? Yeah. Wow. Okay. However, at this trial, there was testimony given that Ian had domestically abused Jules on at least three occasions. Jules says that Ian was very remorseful and that alcohol was involved each time. Ian says that the domestic violence needs to be taken in context because he was very irresponsible with whiskey. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's like, (laughs) if your qualifier is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did abuse my partner, but like, listen, there's some context here that's missing. And the context is I was fucking wasted. Yeah. Come on. Uh, never an excuse. 
No. And how shitty for Jules to be put in that situation of like, I have to provide excuses for my abuser so that by me being open about being a victim of domestic violence, that's not somehow going to damn him in this murder investigation. Mm. Jules has every justification in the world. Ian was on pain medication. Ian was really drunk. Mm -hmm. She also says, well, he hasn't touched me in 12 years after the last time. And she says, quote, we were just really stressed out. We drank too much and argued. It's really sad that Jules feels the need to take this responsibility and justify, but also unfortunately really common. Oh yeah. Especially in the cycle of domestic violence when you're on the downswing Mm -hmm. and you know, everything's calm and quiet and things are actually maybe good for the first time in a while, but it's Mm -hmm. really only a matter of time before that upswing is coming. And I can almost guarantee that if anything has happened since this murder investigation, there is no chance that Jules is letting that come out. No, there's really shitty narratives around like, why wouldn't she just leave him and all that? And you know, you I both know that like it's not as simple as that it's incredibly dangerous for people to leave situations like that and there's a certain amount of times where it takes three or four times for someone to leave to actually leave someone like that and even then the amount of safety planning that needs to go into that and the ability to have a support system and that's the thing about when you examine crime like this these types of things don't occur in a vacuum and so it doesn't surprise me to hear that there is a potential domestic violence situation going on at the same time where like victims of crimes are victims themselves and there's all these social systems that fail people and that's what causes crime like it I mean that's that's my restorative justice background talking that all this stuff is interconnected and the breakdown of relationships is what leads to this kind of crime Ian's journals are also admitted into evidence and in them are lengthy passages where he describes being very sexually aggressive and violent towards Jules Jules says that she has fully forgiven Ian and isn't at all worried about anything ever happening again because Ian keeps his word Jules, I think you might be a little bit brainwashed, my dear. Yeah. And again, when your abuser is really kind to you and really nice to you and keeps you safe, and you might make yourself think that of like, you're right. People make mistakes and they're changed. I shouldn't be upset with them anymore. And that's part of the emotional abuse. There's also the sunken cost fallacy where she's really committed now. And if Ian is guilty, he's done something awful. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. could make it twice as hard for her to even consider, I have to get away from this because Mm -hmm. of the amount of time and that the weight of that secret if you knew that he was guilty right in 2020 when interviewed ian is asked if he would submit another dna sample ian's first response is to say well you know i don't have to just to be very clear you know i don't have to do that that's true (laughs) he says quote if i was asked to in principle i wouldn't have an objection why do we have to ask at this point ian And you know what the problem is, is that we're doing a DNA test in 2021. Exactly. Not 1996. There's no DNA to test. So fuck right. me, right? Yeah, I'm sitting here being like, yeah, I'm sure like they could with the technology today, like if the murder had happened today, they could have been better at this, but they, they didn't and they don't have it. And so like, even if he were to submit DNA samples now, I don't know how helpful that would be. Right. Between 2005 and 2007, Ian attempts to sue the Guardi and the state for wrongful arrest, intimidation, harassment, and assault. His lawyer also issues a letter to Marie Farrell, and she recants her statement. Marie is interviewed by the BBC, and she says that she was pressured by the police to implicate Ian, but he is not the person that she saw near Sophie's property. Okay. (laughs) Marie's statement was the main piece of evidence against Ian, so there are now even more doubts. 
In 2008, French investigators finally receive the Gardi file and begin to re-interview witnesses. They also exhume Sophie's body. Oh, wow. In 2010, the French authorities try to question Ian, and they attempt to extradite him. They fail. They then attempt to extradite him for voluntary homicide, and they want to put Ian on trial. Pierre-Louis suspects Ian for Sophie's murder, as there's evidence he was violent against Jules. He has no alibi, and there's still all of the witnesses who did not recant their statements against Ian. He also points out that there's no firm evidence that Ian is innocent, and he is not going to stop asking questions until he learns the truth about what happened to his mother. French police feel that this sudden recantment of statement by Marie Farrell is very suspicious. The timing is fishy. Mm-hmm. However, in French law, recanted statements can still be used in evidence. Interesting. Ian says the French are interpreting facts that are not supported by the evidence. The French police challenge Ian's explanation of the tree scratches and turkey scratches as supported by witness statements and not seeing scratches of any kind on December 23rd, earlier that night when they had seen Ian. In an interview, Ian is confronted with this directly and he says, oh, that's nonsense. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Ian also says, quote, the witness statements are factually flawed. I'm sure they are. The journalist responds and says, your journals were reviewed by a psychiatrist in the French investigation, and they were found to contain evidence of narcissism, psychorigidity, which refers to an obstinate inability to yield or or a refusal to appreciate another person's viewpoint or emotions, which can be characterized by a lack of empathy. It can also refer to the tendency to perservate, which is the inability to change habits and inability to modify concepts and attitudes once developed. They also showed evidence of violence, impulsiveness, egocentricity, intolerance of frustration, and a great need for recognition. I just have to say, I feel pretty attacked on that last one. Yeah, no kidding. I'm like, uh, (laughs) good thing I don't keep a journal that this psychologist could look at. (laughs) Ian is then asked if he identifies with any of those characteristics, and he scoffs and insists none of those apply to me. Okay. He also says that he doesn't actually need an alibi because he knows that he has nothing to do with the murder. And all Mm -hmm. of this effort was made to make him a murderer, but he can't prove a negative, which is he didn't do it. Okay. In March 2019, Ian's trial in France is held in absentia and Ian is found guilty. We love a trial in absentia. Yeah. Wow. Holy moly. But he's in Ireland, so they could say you're guilty. And if you ever come into France, we'll arrest you. But as long as you're in Ireland, we can't do anything about it. Right. Pierre-Louis, before the trial, says that he knows Ian is a strange person, but Mm -hmm. he still has suspicions. However, he really does not want an innocent man to go to jail. He said at the time, I'm not a judge, I am a son, and my mother has been killed. We have a legal system, and I will let them decide. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a very mature and elevated response to say... I'm too close to this. I can't be the one to decide what happens or whether he did it. Right. Let's let the authorities figure it out. And I don't know if that's culturally, that's a French thing where they actually Mm -hmm. have a justice system they can trust and have faith in. Right. Well, and I, well, and I'm even just thinking about like, I don't know if I was already dealing with like the lifelong pain of losing a mother violently to think about putting someone innocent 
on death row or in jail forever. Like that creates more violence for someone else. And I would hate to be responsible for that. He is very self-aware enough to point out that like, I'm probably not an objective person to determine if there's a guilt or innocence here. Right. I'm wildly unqualified to do that. (laughs) Right. A true restorative justice mindset of like, I can't do this and let's let other people who can be objective do this. Right. Ian begins working towards a law degree as he avoids extradition There is currently this European extradition warrant, but he has been fighting that in court. To save face in Ireland, the director of public prosecutions assigned Ian a solicitor, which is a lawyer, and gave him the full Guardi investigation file. Ian proceeds to use this file to further his stance that the investigation was flawed because they had to prove at some point that they didn't have enough on Ian. And the file does not have enough on Ian. The Irish government refuses to turn Ian over, and if he does ever leave Ireland, he will be arrested. Sure. Ian's lawyer says that after Marie recanted, she was viewed as unreliable. Allegedly, according to the director of public prosecutions, the French evidence just doesn't meet the standard for them. Okay. Which I know that there are different laws and different forms of criminal justice. There are several other very large-scale fuck-ups by the Irish government. Right. And the most recent being the refusal to release the records of the mother and children. There were a lot of just horrific, horrific actions taken by the government. You are interested in hearing about how awful the Irish government has been lately in relation to victims. That's a good thing to look into. Ian says that Marie's statements never should have been included in the French investigation in the first place. He also alleges in court that the Guardi conspired against him to focus the investigation on him and tamper with evidence. He tries to sue the Guardi and the court in 2014 and loses this case. In 2016, a high court judge examines evidence from Ian's case. And the judge says that some of the Guardi did show signs of being willing to conspire against Ian based Mm -hmm. on radio and phone communications that they had had around the case, but there was no evidence that they had actually ever done so. Ian still faces the murder charges and result of that trial in Paris if he is ever extradited. Ian and Jules are still together. Ian very happily reports that all their domestic issues are behind them. Ian says, Jules is terrified that I will be taken away and put into the Bastille or something. Jeez. I hate you so much. That's how it works, right? Like, (laughs) my God. He's so dramatic. Oh, no. It's like the Mm self-righteousness and like, why me? It just makes me sick. Ian's lawyer says that the French have a very poor criminal justice system. And Ian says that he would love for French prosecutors to come to Ireland and put him on trial in Ireland under the Irish laws. He even even goes so far to say, I would welcome that. Ian and Jules still live in Skull. They sell vegetables at the farmer's market on the weekends. Most people avoid them both entirely. And Ian maintains his innocence into 2021. Pierre-Louis says he will not rest until Ian is in France and held accountable. He -hmm. wants to find answers for his grandparents before they die. He feels that justice will be done one day for sure. The family in the years following Sophie's murder have continued their tradition of coming home to visit, to spend time in the countryside that she loved so much. Mm-hmm. In 2003, Sophie's husband, Daniel, passed away after he had remarried. So he did go on to find love again. 
family and friends establish ASOF, Association for the Truth about Sophie Duplantier. Mm-hmm. They give media statements about the law enforcement's not cooperating as it had been like 10 years before they finally did. Mm-hmm. And they currently work to standardize European Union laws to allow foreign nationals to have assistance from their home countries when they are killed abroad. That's great. Yeah. So yeah, justice not served. I'm just thinking about Again, from like a restorative justice lens, like it doesn't have to work with the person who committed the crimes cooperation, right? There still can be healing done like separate from that for the victims of that crime. And and yet all these unanswered questions they have about their mom and how she died and, you know, why and all that like are so unanswered and that there just isn't that opportunity for that. You, you shared about her son saying like his childhood ended at 15. What a loss. And that ostensibly his entire life now is being committed to figuring out who did this and continuing to be let down by the criminal justice system is just so tragic. I can't fully blame the Guardi for not being prepared or not having the resources to know what to do in this investigation. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like it's then your responsibility to say, we need some big city cops, right? Or we need whoever is going to have this experience to, to be able to do this investigation. I feel that it is due to the police solely that justice may never fully be served in this case. I would love for Ian to be extradited, but it's be, it's obvious that the Irish government would rather save face. Mm. Yeah. And then this person continues to kind of put a thumb, like the fact that they they got admitted to a law program and all that. I mean, it's just pretty wild. And I'm trying to sit here and be like, so what if he didn't do it, right? Like, what if all of this is explained away and his entire life has been committed to trying to explain that he didn't murder someone despite all this evidence makes him look bad? That does suck that he is pursuing a law degree and trying to maybe like make this right for other people. Sure, fine. And it just seems like he has been able to be extremely manipulative by knowing how the system works and the that system is not actually capable of holding him accountable. It's got to be so painful. And again, every time one of these trials goes up, it is likely that the family gets involved in some way to provide victim impact statements or to have to work with a victim advocate to know what's going on with the case. And if they have to show up to court and all that, like every single time that happens, they, they're they getting dragged through it again. And it's awful. He really is just so glib in the interviews. He's so, how dare you? Why? How could you even think that? You're an idiot for mm-hmm. thinking that. It's a little ridiculous that he can't even admit like, yeah, I can see how this is all of this stuff looks damning. The fact that the police so mishandled the case and Mm -hmm. then that her body was so disrespectfully treated. I have to imagine that is just so much worse. So many lows finding out about it through the media and hoping that it's not your loved one until you actually finally hear Right. Having to see this asshole go on the news all the time and act like you're crazy. It's, mm-hmm. It really is pretty awful. And for Sophie, trying to think restorative justice mindset, mm-hmm. they could have put up a memorial for her. They could have held some kind of service. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would assume that if there was a local church, they probably said a mass in her name, I would guess right. at least. Mm-hmm. But the police and the government really needed to acknowledge wrongdoing and they they reinforced Ian's poor behavior and protests of innocence. Right. Mm. I hope that they get the answers they're looking for, even if it's not through the criminal justice system. Like I imagine those trips are very healing for the family and, you know, that they they get to reclaim some of her life in that way. It sounds really nice. 
now that I've heard this whole story and that, you know, they're able to talk to their children about their grandmother and all that. You know, I, I think at some point that's what has to happen. Like you can't rely on these systems to bring you peace. Like you're not responsible for the trauma. You are responsible for healing. That's really hard in this situation because they didn't ask for any of this to happen to them, but to think about them reclaiming some of their mom and, you know, their grandmother sounds like the best they can do given the situation. And it's this tie to the land that she loved so much too. Mm -hmm. Like while she wasn't Irish, it seems that she felt this like draw. Kinship. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's beautiful that they want to continue that. And it's something their kids will likely continue and a Mm -hmm. place that their family can continue to cherish. It does sound like it's really healthy for them and something that they are able to do in a way that's like emotionally safe for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is a positive, but it's just so many letdowns by the Guardi. Well, thank you for sharing this with me. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on. What's something that made you happy within the last week? Oh, I can tell you. So I've had a weighted blanket forever and I didn't really use it very often, but I, for some reason, felt this call to pull it out. And I've been sleeping with a weighted blanket at night and it is making me sleep like the dead. And I, (laughs) I've really been needing some good, deep, restorative sleep lately. And I have been receiving it. Um, My, I've got two children and my youngest is starting to sleep through the night. And so I am also sleeping through the night because of that. And then under this weighted blanket, it just feels so comforting and so nice. I know I'm kind of late to the weighted blanket game, but it is changing my sleep in a positive way. (laughs) It's amazing. I got a weighted blanket when I was still living staff in Mm -hmm. university housing. And yeah, it's, there's all this stuff about how it helps reset your circadian rhythms and it really makes a huge difference. My thing that made me happy this week is Krispy Kreme. I got to go there yesterday and get nice. some and I try to space it out when we moved to this place. We we're very, very close to one. Mm-hmm. And I definitely went a little bit ham sandwich and was there oh. a little bit too regularly. <laughs> so I went this weekend and it, it has been a couple months and it was nice. I still have a few to enjoy. So Good to remember there's some good stuff going on in the midst of all the bad stuff. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thanks again for coming on. This is really a lot of fun. Yeah. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Hi, friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us, all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from. Maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com.